0: Hello, welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother Podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my brother, Jeremy Sartori. It's a Brother, Brother Podcast. Today we're talking about The Clash. You can learn more about The Pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now let's talk about the only band that matters The Clash. the Brother 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 podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Winnie Lewis. I'm here with Jeremy Sartori, and today we are talking about The Clash, um, the only band that matters, one of my absolute favorite bands, if not my favorite band of all time. And uh, it is the 40th, I mean, give or take a couple months, the 40th anniversary of the release of their debut album, The Clash. Um, How did you first uh, encounter The Clash, Jerry?
1: Yeah, I mean, so it's funny. I, I, thinking that it's the 40th year of the Clash, and being that I turn 40. 41 um, a week from today, it's uh, you know, it's funny. I was one years old, so I did not encounter them on birth, but I uh, I started to get into kind of punk rock and and you know, um, alternative music at the time. I think both through you and then also through kind of skateboarding. And I made the unfortunate choice of my first Clash album being "Cut the Crap" <laughs> because the guy on the cover had a mohawk. And, uh, that, uh,
0: that, that album is officially doesn't exist. Yeah,
1: and we're, we will not discuss it again in this pod. But um, you know, then just going back through the catalog, I think I you know I had London Calling first, and, and then the debut album probably second, and uh, they were just one of those bands that like. When you talked about, you know, uh the Sex Pistols, the Clash, the Dead Candies in America or or Circle Jerks and bands like that. They were just it was a t-shirt band for sure. You know, there was always some kid or guy that looked pretty cool to me in skinny jeans and a clash t-shirt, you know, no matter where you lived. And uh and it was a band that always was in the back of sort of fanzines and, and uh, you know, record magazines that I was checking out. Um I don't think I was into them via like critical acclaim or anything of that nature. I know you did give me London Calling and we're going to talk about that album later and I'll definitely give you my initial take and and how I think of that album today. But the, the, you know, 40-year-old Clash debut is a pretty raucous punk record with a lot more to it than you think when you go back and listen to it.
0: It's pretty great. I I actually came about it um, in the most punk rock fashion of all, uh, being that I was eight years old. Uh, My grandmother sent it to me from England and... uh, (laughs) Good old Gladys. And um, that was how I, and it, but it was on heavy rotation for a long time. It was like one of those albums where I kept waiting because, you know, and I, I wasn't really as aware reputationally, uh, but, you know, I think, um, you know, my dad had given me a subscription to Rolling Stone at that point. Um, you know, when I was like eight or nine. And um, it was one of those bands that, that sort of struck fear. I remember being in, in England in, in 76, the year you were born and, you know, being there in the summer of 76 and really, you know, being titillated and, uh, and frightened at the same time by the emergence of, of punk rock and, and the specter of the Sex Pistols. Um, I couldn't believe, and I didn't probably get the Sex Pistols until a little bit, um, later, but, uh, cause my grandmother did not like them, um, given their name and their disrespect for the, the monarchy. Um, but, uh, I, I remember listening to the clash and and thinking this isn't so scary it was uh it was it was just good um so it was, yeah. it was kind of funny and and um i remember particularly you know some of the the lyrics from that album like career opportunities and stuff that that were fairly you know easily understandable uh to an eight year old or nine year old um which I'm not sure speaks well for the uh necessarily for the sophistication uh that they were going for but they were pretty simple um you know emotions and 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 issues they were working with um and they were resonant and so you could feel it and you could tell you know there's something that I wouldn't have been able to put my finger on then which is that you could tell they gave a shit.
1: Yeah, and I mean 77 in general was the year that you know punk rock really really broke out you had you know the clash sex pistols um Ram- i mean the ramones album had come out the buzzcocks. year before i think influenced these guys in america and and then yeah buzzcocks and Deep i, I think that there's like a it's a funny thing because i had a similar experience where like you know i actually did a um history report on how <laughs> um, <laughs> punk rock changed music and uh, and it was, you know, very focused on on sort of the Clash, Sex Pistols, those guys. But it was kind of scary. It was like a look. It was, you know, that sort of... And the Sex Pistols, I think, had that nihilistic approach. And the Clash had sort of a almost progressive approach. And, and build... You know, Punk was there to sort of unite and and build build sort of a grassroots effort. I mean, they were very sort of uh, uh, righteous in, in a way. But also, like, pretty, you know, uh, pretty smart in, in their lyrics. And, and so a curious, like... Where did they kind of, and not being younger, obviously I came to all this stuff later. And to me, you know, the Clash, Sex Pistols, Buzzcocks, Jam bands we just mentioned all have really different sounds, even though they're kind of all grouped into quote unquote punk. Um, where, where do you like, where do you see the, the debut of the Clash kind of fitting in and how did it kind of shape that scene? A well, little I
0: bit? think, you know, it's funny, I, I had, I was struggling to put a, a point, you know, fine point on this, um, you know, when I was. Uh, when we were trying to educate young Christian on the on the ways of, of punk rock, but it was it was interesting. It came to you know sort of came to me in in very very clear way when I read John Doe's recent book under the Big Black Sun, which is sort of a collection of essays uh, written by different people who were in the punk uh, scene in in LA in the late seventies. And what it was really was you know the the uniting principle was that this was different. Um, that it wasn't, you know, it was, A, a response to, you know, frequently it's referred to as, as having been a response to the bloat of things like Emerson Lake and Palmer and, and Yes and, you know, the prog rock and the and the sort of virtuosity um, that those musicians had on uh, the seven-minute suites based on... Uh, things that
1: scared <laughs> people from actually picking
0: the, up instruments, basically. The Flight of Icarus. But um, <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> But, you know, it was it, it was more a gut feeling, I think. And things like, um, you know, I mean, the jam, uh, the buzzcocks, the Sex Pistols, and the Clash. I mean, they're all writing, if you go back and listen to it now, they're all writing tunes. I mean, they're all sort of based um, somewhere in the British invasion, um, uh, 50s, 60s uh, kind of uh, pop music, um, you know, whatever you call it, axis or or, uh, curve, Um, but, you know, they were, these were, you know, they were rougher around the edges. They weren't as precise. They were, it was more about attitude and feeling than it was about virtuosity, and it was a lot about getting your point across um, in any way possible. I mean, that said, you know, you look at the original members of the Clash, which are not the you know it's not the foursome that is best known as you know the group they put together. I mean, Clash when they started out it was Joe Strummer, Paul on Mick Jones, uh, Terry Chimes, and Keith Levine. Keith Levine later of Pill. Um, so you know, by the by the time the first album came out, or just after the first album came out, Terry Chimes I think um, was booted for a topperhead and. And Keith Levine had uh, left the band before even the first album came out. So um, it was a different group, but you know, none of these guys are are what you'd call bad musicians. I mean, Paul Simonon accepted, who sort of taught himself to play bass. Um, I think taught himself how to pose with a bass before he taught himself how to play yeah, bass, he, he, but turned out to be a pretty good player. Taught himself how to wear it around his ankles. It yeah. was pretty damn cool. <laughs> no, he was. He was the he, but I mean talk about uh, having a great art director for your band. I mean, that guy's it. That guy was always looked cooler than everybody else and that's part of their appeal too as they you know they had a look and a and an attitude that you know really uh, made distinction or made them distinctive um and and one of the best band names i think out of that whole crew as
1: well um, yeah
0: the it beats the hell out of the one rock on, band name the 101ers which is uh what uh joe strummer's band was before
1: yeah uh, and I- I mean, speaking of Strummer, I mean, you know, I think they had a... It's funny you say that, because it's one of those rare brand, bands where, like... And I think the Sex Pistols, to a certain degree, were this, too. I mean, they were a bit more of an art project via Malcolm McLaren. But, I mean, The the Clash really did adopt a look-first sort of aesthetic. But I think they backed it up on this album with, you know, on this debut album with, with a lot of fury and, 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 and really smart songs. I mean, you know, I think you mentioned career opportunities at first, which is like a, a burner about, you know, sort of the state of England in the late seventies. You know, obviously I'm so bored with the USA is a knock on our, our uh, home country on, and, you know, just having force fed, you know, things from the U S and sort of the U S global dominance, you know, in the late seventies, Jenny, Jones, remote control. I mean, they're short, you know quick punk songs but there always was like a little flourishes of like backing vocals via yeah. uh Mick Jones or Oh yeah there's there's a, there's a lot of Phil S-
0: a lot of Phil Spector in here despite yeah. the rough edges. Um the funny thing is you know I mean I, like I said before I was in England uh the summer of 76 or in and around Europe uh but largely in England and um uh you know I mean this stuff you know my my favorite show without a doubt was Top of the Pops. And, you know, these guys, the Clash were, were coming, uh, the Clash weren't as well known. The, again, that was the summer of the Sex Pistols, but the Sex Pistols were topping the charts because they were banned. And then, you know, the other top songs were things like, you know, Save All Your Kisses For Me. I mean, they were practically show tunes. So it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a funny juxtaposition. And it did feel like something was breaking through a really, really pretty dull uh, snoozy culture that was falling to shit, um, during that summer. I mean, it was, I, like I said, we, we spent most of our time down South and, uh, outside of Brighton, you know, where, uh, family's from. But, um, you know, even when you go into, went into London, then it, it felt, it felt scary in a way that, um, you know, in the same way that New York did at that point, it just didn't feel like you were entirely safe Anywhere and the infrastructure <laughs> was crumbling, and you know the jobless rate was astronomical. Uh, it was a very depressed place at the time, and this was an answer to that. So, and anyway. the
1: Clash. I, I mean, before we move on, real quick, two things I wanted to just throw out there. I do remember a funny part in, in Legs McNeil's "Please Kill Me," where the Ramones were touring uh, their first UK tour, and I think the Clash had formed. I don't think this album was out. And they were sort of like in an alley and they saw the Ramones and they like quickly struck poses of like tough guy I want to fight because they just thought the Ramones were like the baddest ass <laughs> motherfuckers <laughs> around. And they were literally like scared that they'd beat him up, you know, and and, uh, and as we all know, the Ramones were just the Ramones. But uh, the other one I just want to ask you real quickly before we move on from the debut was. How did this resonate in America? Did it resonate in America? Was it something that, like, yeah. other than legs, other than, um, sorry, uh, Lester Bangs and people like that who always seem to champion this band? But
0: I don't think they really, you know, the first album didn't really make any uh, real impact in the states outside of you know critical circles and colleges and things and imports. It was a, actually the top selling import, I believe, of all time at the time. But it wasn't released in America. It was released in England on CBS records and it CBS made a conscious decision not to release it in America because, you know, it wasn't going to translate. Uh, that said, uh, again, like I said, until, uh, blue Monday came around, this was the top import, um, import record sales wise of all time, um, in 1977. Uh, so it, you know, it did, there was a, there was an appetite for it, but as, you know, as is often the case, uh, um, the people in charge didn't seem to think there would be, so um, they ensured that there wouldn't. And in fact, the follow-up record is very much, um, you know, a uh, you know, a, a symptom of of that way of thinking because um, they decided they needed a big, slick American producer uh, to to sort of interpret the clash so that American audience could. Um, could get it could understand it (laughs) could understand it and so they hired sandy perlman um wait hold on
1: let's let's listen to a song off the first album then let's jump in to give him enough rope okay cool what do you say all right cool how about career opportunities
0: sounds good to me
2: Up, i apple used to keep you off the dock Carry her up, I do not need a woman Jump they also used to keep you at the dock Guys, we are opportunity the one man
1: Welcome back to the Brother Pod. Today we're talking about the only band that matters, The Clash. And, uh, you know, a little bit in... uh, Wyndham and I decided to kind of jump on and talk about The Clash in part because of the debut album being 40 years old and uh, also because we love the clash yeah so um for 1978's follow up we kind of ended the last segment talking a little bit about um you know how that came about and and sort of the uh i think we we were talking earlier offline the the album that you could find in every used record bin in your record store yeah, it was, <laughs> Give it, them was enough a,
0: rope. it was always in the discount bin um that was sort of its uh that was sort of its uh you know, lot in the world. Um, it's uh, very much maligned, and um, you know the the band itself doesn't like the album. Um, the you know Clash fans tend to rank it lowest on the totem pole uh, because you know Cut the Crap doesn't exist, as you know, um, and uh, it's it given enough rope. And and like I said before, it's you know they they put a you know big slick American producer on it because. Uh, they didn't think that The Clash would translate um, and those rough edges would, uh, you know, would translate well in America. Um, so they put Sandy Perlman, who was the keyboard player, I believe, for Blue Oyster Cult. And, you know, it's a sheenier record, certainly, than the debut album. But there's some good songs on there. I mean, Safe European Home's a great song. Um you know, there were, and I believe that was a single, uh, it just, but the album never took off. Tommy they, Gun. Tommy Gun. Yeah. They, they, um, you know, it was released in the States, um, as opposed to the Clash's debut album, which was not released in the States. And, um, you know, it sort of meandered. Um, so, you know, it, it, it died on the vine a little bit. Um, it's not very well regarded, but it's, it's better than people think it was, um, That said, uh, a couple, you know, and this is back in the period of time when, you know, bands were putting out, you know, if you weren't getting your next album out in nine months, um, there was something seriously wrong. And um, at that point, um, you know, I think the uh, record company, CBS, regrouped and and tried to put a big push behind uh, what was to be their biggest... Uh, album and greatest achievement, and perhaps the greatest album of all time, and that uh, you know that that push is um, you know was reflected in in some heavy touring um, and a lot of build up around album number three. So uh, let's hear "Save European
1: Home" and let's talk about the album that really uh, yeah. made them the Clash. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother pod. Uh, Today is Wyndham and I doing a Brother, Brother pod about The Clash. And uh, just, you know, like The Clash, obviously one of those bands that, uh, you know, has become legendary. We're kind of talking about how they began and, and sort of our experience with loving them, but... One of the things that I always loved was the tagline, The Only Band That Matters. And I've always kind of wondered, like, where the hell did that come from? Was that something the band came up with, uh, rock journalist like Lester Bangs? Or who? who where did that come from? Do you, do you know? It
0: came directly from the boardroom of CBS Records. Um, oh, nice. It was uh, like a good
1: marketing man, ad it, man for you. It really
0: was. I mean, it, it's it's funny. I mean, they were, they were fairly maligned by... Um, you know some of the true believers and the diehards in the British press because uh, you know I mean the Clash signed to CBS Records before they put out their first album. It's um, you know it, for some people that that was seen as selling out before uh, they could even you know I mean before they even had the opportunity to to have any integrity as artists. But to be honest with you, it you know it did bring them to a much broader audience than they would have you know been had they you know signed to um, some failing local label. Uh, in, in London at the time, so uh, but it was in between. Give Me enough rope, um, as we said. Give Me enough rope was, was sort of, um, you know, a test missile that was fired uh, into the U.S. market, and you know was had kind of lackluster appeal, and it was always in the uh, in the uh, price cutter bin at any record store you went into, because you know it didn't go over well. It was a bad um, mixture of of. Taking what is intrinsically made the Clash a great band, and sort of trying to gloss over the rough edges, which is what makes the Clash the rough edges. Um, That said, they went back, repackaged the band as the only band that matters. Um, Thank you, marketing department of CBS Records. And but Justin, you know, I mean, talk about you know putting a heavy burden on a band to live up to that kind of expectation. Um, but what they did next was put out "London Calling," which basically
1: absolutely blew those expectations <laughs> blew the out of expectations the water. out of the
0: water. And you know, legitimately, that was a big hit on both sides. I mean, "London Calling" was a was a. I mean, I believe it peaked at number twelve in the United States. I mean, it was not.
1: I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't
0: know it was like as popular
1: here. Yeah, I mean, not it. that it' not a number one album, obviously, but number twelve is pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, "Train in and Bane" was a was a radio hit. Um, yeah. And it was not listed on the album. Again, that was one of those myths that you know there was somehow you know a secret song that, or that you know the band didn't want to list it because it was such a pop song. You know, it was you know a complete gem of a pop song by Mick Jones. But in all actuality, the band just recorded that song after uh, you know the album packaging I'm had gone. Yeah, it's it's it wasn't as. Um, ingenious or nefarious as uh has commonly believed it's just an completely uh you know they knew they struck gold and they're like well will throw this one on too um, well this
1: this kind of launches the clash into the 80s too and and i think let's talk london calling and we'll, we'll follow it up with sandinista but like i mean we've talked about london calling prior i think on your your comfort food episode or, or one of the episodes the perfect albums it might have been for you and uh It really is a perfect album, but this kind of goes back to the discussion that we had. I I want to say like I had London Calling as my first real Clash album because the, we all know that Cut the Crap doesn't exist, Um, and you know album cover like one of the best album covers ever. You know not only for a punk band but for any band, and uh, you know thank you Armadillo World Headquarters, Austin, Texas. Great you know Elvis sort of uh, you know lettering on the album the opener, London Calling. I mean, if you want, like, sort of 70s, late 70s, early 80s punk, it, it, it doesn't get better. But then this album just turns into something completely different. And it really threw me for a loop as a as a youngster trying to find as edgy a music as I could. And not that it's not edgy. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, they, they always had flourishes of, of reggae and, and other sort of world music that The Clash, I think unlike a lot of those other bands, incorporated that we talked about. But... I mean, this goes from, you know, rockabilly U.S. music to sort of New Orleans jazz back to kind of straight-ahead bar pub rock and, uh, you know, into obvious reggae and, and dub. I mean, this album is all over the place in the best possible ways. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how did that kind of, like, resonate in 1980 USA and 1979 UK? I mean, was well, this, like...
0: I think, you know, one of the things that is... is you know sort of a misconception about this band is that you know they were you know because they were so progressive and because they were so forthright and forward-thinking um it it sort of got glossed over the fact that they were complete romantics about the past in music and particularly American music and you know when they toured in America um I believe the first you know when they you know they had a they have pretty decent support and they and CBS was trying to launch them big, but you know, when they came over, they basically, they were able to select their own opening bands and, and time and time again, they were selecting these historically great and pretty well forgotten, uh, bands. I mean, BB King, uh, Sam and Dave, um, Joe Ely, uh, I opened for them for a significant portion of the time. um, they were trying to get, they were trying to bring attention to their heroes. They weren't
1: having Husker Du opening, or Husker Du wouldn't have been around them, but they weren't having, uh, you know, American punk bands open for the them. The Dead then Kennedys open going for back, or, Yeah,
0: exactly. Or Mission of Burma or anybody else they were having. I mean, they were going for, you know, um, they, were, they were basically kids from England saying, imagine our luck, we have this, you know, we have this power to, to, you know, work with some of our idols and that would be Sam and Dave and and, you know, BB King and and uh Joe Ely and I mean that's the first time I ever heard of Joe Ely um was because he opened for the clash. Um not that I was not that I saw them or was able to go. I just, you know, was reading about them and and that put Joe Ely on my radar, uh and many people's radar, I think, for the first time. He was a pretty um regional uh, artist at that point uh coming out of texas but it's reflected in the in the kind of music that that's on this album i mean there's sort of one of everything and and ordinarily that is such a recipe for disaster but they oh yeah they sort of took everything and made it ran it through the, the sort of clash filter and so that rockabilly sounds great on you know brand new cadillac and and you know lovers rock um or uh jimmy jazz or any of those songs that are sort of uh you know of a different genre uh sort of sound of a piece because um i think (laughs) almost because of their limitations i mean because joe strummer is a yeller not a Clash everything yeah Yeah, i mean everything you know sort of um by virtue of, of limitation i mean they're not they weren't Good enough, I mean, they weren't great enough musicians to really emulate well, some of the players that they're talking about. And yet they were able to incorporate that feeling into a Clash song and make it a Clash song.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's one other album really that I, I equate to being this good and this much of like a. Uh, I don't know, experimentation, I guess, to some degree, or or, or passion project, or other Genre sounds, hopping. and it would be yeah, Exile on Main Street, which doesn't really hop into that many different genres, blues and country it's being blues. the primary too. Yeah, but um, but it, it definitely Rolling Stones those genres into a you know just a, a really original sounding album, and I think this one even more so is way more experimental because I, I think Mick Jones too, who we haven't really talked about, and you know, obviously the singer of Train in Vain, which was when mentioned was the hit um off this album at least in the U.S. um was you know he did the McJones. Jones I mean you've lost in the supermarket and his sort of pop songs that um you know he did one thing really well and that was pop music and I think uh you know Joe Strummer attempted to do a lot of different things but they all sound like Joe Strummer yeah and uh and The Clash and it's it's really uh I mean this album really is a masterpiece and it's become kind of like a classic rock album to me it's it's become a sort of in the same sentences as Zeppelin or... or it is Stones a classic rock ...or Bob album. Dylan or, you know, any of those guys, yeah. I mean, that's
0: part of the conversation around this band because it's, you know, it's... You know, I think, like Christian said before, it's like The Clash never sounded punk to him. And it's like, that's because the the sort of rules of, of what punk sounds like as opposed to the rules of what punk an attitude was uh, the rules of what punk sounds like were established later. Um, you know, that sort of... Um, Adherence to a single sound, that loud, fast, um, you know, sound is is really um, that came from California uh, a few years after, uh, you know, punk in this sense, in the late 70s into the early 80s was really about doing something different and, you know, sort of not putting virtuosity at the fore of your music. Um, it was more about expressing what needed to be expressed, uh, what was top of mind, what was in, you know, in your gut, uh, making that, uh, resonate and then using, you know, music as a vehicle for that. Um, rather than, you know, these sort of strict, um, rule, you know, handbook and rule book, uh, that dictates, uh, what, what something should sound like. I mean, this is, uh, this is a weird fucking album. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, uh, You know, the song, like I said before, I think in our comfort food uh, section, I think, you know, virtually of the 19 or so songs that are on this album, um, I think all of them have been my favorite at some point, with the exception of maybe two or three.
1: Yeah, it's one of those albums that, you know, I certainly, you know, loved the London Calling was an initial rush, the, the single and the song. And then probably put down for a couple of years because it didn't quite fill what I was looking for, and then picked it back up. And 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 I always find a new one on this album, and and uh, even songs I didn't love. And and it's, there's very few that I can say that. I mean, I think I I like it start to finish. Now there's a couple that are, like any album that are a little weaker to me, but it's um you know songs that I, I have have a whole new meaning. I mean, the other interesting thing too, minus the covers, is. They always kind of co-wrote. I mean, Joe Strummer and and Mick Jones both share kind of like the Dylan and, I mean, sorry, Lennon McCarthy or, you know, um, billing there. Like, they both co-write everything. Um, A few songs I think The Clash wrote as a band, but um, it's interesting that they co-write. I
0: I think they, you know, they sort of filled that Lennon and McCartney um, mold, too. I mean, Mick Jones was a guy who farts out, uh, pop Melody, tunes, yeah, yeah. And, and Joe Strummer was a guy who was striving for something um, more intellectual and visceral, and I think that is the Lennon McCartney put those two things together, and you get this natural tension that that makes for a great uh, pop song that's yeah. both ambitious and catchy.
1: Yeah, I mean Strummer had kind of a Bruce Springsteen slash Lennon kind of working man ethos you know to uh definitely Mick Jones had I want to be a rock star or pop star
0: <laughs> yeah i mean and and, yeah. And, and and typical of of you know that sort of intention and you know i mean Joe Strummer is a son of a diplomat uh you know who grew up in boarding schools um yeah. where Mick Jones and and Paul Simonon are from brixton so you know it that's and oftentimes that's the case i mean it's the the sort of uh you know there's idealist a, there's a wannabe quality to people who grow up you know in comfort uh that that want to have a a more meaningful life and there's people who grow up um you know in council houses who 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 want to achieve something uh you know who want to strike it rich and uh both of them are are sort of valid ways of thinking but you know it's the, when those two things meet it it really uh you know I, I it's a great recipe when it works.
1: Well, cool. Let's. Uh, what do you want to hear off London Calling? And then we'll come back and I talk want to hear the whole album. The, the Clash. All right, let's do it. <laughs> uh, well, there uh, will be know. a playlist on
0: Spotify that will mean, the Clash album. Is the de- default move would be Spanish Bombs, I guess.
1: Back to the brother brother pod. It's uh, Wyndham and I today talking about the only band that matters, the Clash, and uh, post London Calling and uh, putting out a, a double album masterpiece. What did they do next, Windham?
0: Well, it's funny. One of the you know one of the sort of side stories of, of London Calling was um, and they were constantly at war with I think with themselves really about the nature of their relationship with CBS. I think they there was a lot of guilt involved and a lot of um, you know, I think they felt slightly hypocritical. So, you know, they kept pushing to change the way the, the label did business and on London calling that meant putting out a double album and demanding that the, uh, label only charge for a single album price, which I believe they actually got done. Um, yeah,
1: that's right. I forgot about that story.
0: And, uh, so they, uh, then they did it again. So, again, this is a time when, when a band is putting out albums basically every nine months. And so they put out a double album in 79, 80. Um, and then they put out a triple album in 81, Sandinista. Um, which uh, obviously uh, derives its name from uh, the Nicaraguan Civil War. of um, uh, The Contras and the Sandinistas. Um, it is... A triple album that again they they tried to impose uh their their will on cbs and get them to sell it as a as a single album uh and i believe they wound up getting it sold as a double album um so three for the price of two uh but this one was even more sort of uh scatterbrained and and um uh experimental in terms of where they went musically which in London Calling's case, it worked extremely well. In Sandinista's case, uh, there's 36 songs on the album.
1: <laughs> there's Admittedly, a, yeah. there's a couple. There's some that hit could, and miss. <laughs> there's, a, yeah.
0: there's a couple of misfires, but you know what? There might,
1: there might be an album out of the three that you could you could probably. Uh, if that move, was a double album. It'd be sides. amazing. Yeah. But if it
0: was a double album, it wouldn't be Sandanista either, because I mean, there is something too, uh, as we you know mentioned before, like guided by voices. Sometimes the weaker links set up the power. And the dynamics are, you know, forever there. Again, this is a time when, you know, you're sort of forced to listen to entire albums because, uh, you know, you can't hit. It's a pain in the ass to fast forward. Yeah, Yeah, you can you can needle drop, but only so many times before you just get tired of getting up. Um, But that said, I mean, there's some fantastic stuff on here, and it runs the gamut. I mean, stuff like the Magnificent Seven, um,
1: which opens it, right? Yeah.
0: And you know this is they're they're getting, you know, again they're letting their American influences really show. I mean, Magnificent Seven is almost a hip hop song. Um, it's it's got a sort of a little bit of a uh, Jamaican, uh, you know, Sound Clash kind of um, influence the uh, the way it's recorded. But it's it's you know it's in a, in essence this and and uh, Radio Clash, which was a single that came out after. Are um, they're sort of modified hip-hop songs. And this is very early in the hip-hop uh, era. Um, and then you get stuff like Washington Bullets, which is, you know, it's, Ray, you know, a flat-out uh, Calypso kind of song, um, but with an edge. Um, the Call-Up, uh, they, they all have... Somebody Got
1: Murdered. Somebody the Got Murdered. I mean... strikes Not Once, Twice, yeah, those are good. It's...
0: Yeah, I mean, and then something like Lose This Skin, which is, you know, doesn't sound like The Clash. I mean, it's not anyone from The Clash singing, but it's, um, you know, that's it's got elements of, like, Irish folk, you know, Irish traditional music in it. It's, you know, it's basically played on a fiddle. Uh, it's a bizarre record, and it's, to my mind, the coolest album cover of all time, Um the second, you know, the second being uh, London calling, but I think both of these albums, you know, in terms of their packaging, show the kind of artistic vision that the band had too. I mean, there's a there's a whole lot going on in terms of their presentation. Uh, their live show was getting better and better. Um, they sort of left it all on the stage always, and I think that's you know one of the reasons that it was a fairly short live band. That was yeah. They were they were pumping
1: out big albums. Mm -hmm. They were pretty serious. I mean, this is a band that like took being a band. I think pretty serious. There's a great documentary. um, Names escaping me. West Way to the World. West Way to the World, which is I highly recommend. And uh, the Joe Strummer documentary is actually excellent as well. That's really good. And, uh, but I mean, it it really shows like this was a fast and furious time. And, and, you know, Santa Nisa to me, uh, you know, when you grew up with it, um, I know you love it and it's, it's not an album I dislike. It's just a lot. (laughs) It's it's like going through a a box set, um, as an album. And I think some of those sounds and some of those, um, you know, kind of experimentation, like anybody, you listen to sort of early eighties talking heads too, and, and just technology sort of dates it a little bit as well. But it's definitely one that time and place made a huge impact. And, uh, you know, one of the places that they made a huge impact was the legendary uh, run they had in New York City at Bonds. Like, why don't we tell the listeners about that?
0: Well, Bonds was a, a funny a Bonds Casino in uh, Times Square, Manhattan, a very unrecognizable Times Square uh, to anybody who who knows it now. Um, but Bonds uh, was, you know, Clash's integrity meets classic American shysterism, uh, capitalism. Uh, Bonds, they were supposed to do, I think, a seven or eight night run. um, And they were, again, able to highlight some of their favorite bands. I mean, they were, this was 1981, uh, spring, summer of 1981. And they had Grandmaster Flash Flash and the Furious Five opening for them. They had Lee Scratch Perry. They had the Bad Brains. They had the Dead Kennedys. Um, You know, sort of uh, the future, you know, they're... 79 tour where they you know where they had these legacy acts that they wanted to highlight this uh they really had uh you know uh, progressive forward-looking bands that they were trying to highlight and they were booked in for seven i think nights at bonds casino in new york city the uh, concert promoter oversold every night by two So it's a 1,700 capacity. He sells 3,500 tickets for every night. The fire department comes, shuts them down. And the clash to honor everybody who wanted to see them extended it to a 17 or 18 night run so that every ticket could be honored, which is, you know, way above and beyond what anybody would do now. But also just, um, you know, it was a, at that point in that move, you know, got a lot of publicity. I remember reading about it and thinking like, shit, that, you know, that's, it's an amazing move. I mean, you, you're you talking about a band who cares so much that they played for free because somebody else was profiting from them. It was pretty yeah, wild.
1: Yeah, it's, it's legendary, and it kind of goes into that that um, mantra of, of, I think, if it's nicely into the only band that matters. I mean, it's it's one of those things that you, people talk about, you know, sort of the late 70s run that Springsteen had in sort of the face of disco as being kind of like, you know, carrying rock and roll on his back and putting on those epic, you know four hour shows and I think The Clash similarly is a UK version that was you know both progressive was a rock and roll brand that also brought in like new sounds but had that sort of uh, you know, that spirit yeah the ethos of, of you know both punk but also of, of, the, of the people of the fans which is mm-hmm. amazing so let's hear The Magnificent Seven and then we're going to talk about uh, the album that made them huge in the USA and uh, also the end of The Clash back to the Brother Brother pod, and uh, Wyndham and I are doing a, uh, a duo today, Brother Brother pod. An in homage. On, in homage in honor of The Clash, and, and 40 years ago, the debut album coming out. Um, we're actually going to talk about the last album that came out, and the album that, you know, I think when we started this pod, you had mentioned, how did I get into The Clash? I told you how I got into The Clash and sort of knew who The Clash was, but before, or sorry, before I knew who The Clash was... I definitely knew the video of Rock the Casbah," which was on their last album, <laughs> Combat Rock, which yeah. is an insane video and uh, kind of an
0: insanely great song. Might have been the first time I'd ever seen Hasidic. Yeah. Um, it was uh, basically a Hasidic um, and, uh, and an Arab dancing through an oil field. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with a boombox. With a boombox <laughs> and a giant Cadillac.
1: Um, and The Clash, uh, appearing occasionally in, in, sort of like uniformed army fatigues. Yeah. You know,
0: it's just how they drew it up and <laughs> in the in the storyboards, but, um Art Direction. Yeah. I mean, Combat Rock, there was, you know, after putting out five albums worth of album, um, in two year and, you know, over the course of about 18 months, um, they took a little more time, came out with Combat Rock, uh, in 82, single album and, uh, you know, they were being pushed really, they had, uh, you know, they were being pushed to be, um, you know, essentially, I guess what you two ultimately became, which is, you know, they were being pushed to be the biggest band in the world while still wrestling with their own internal desire to have integrity. And, um, you know, it was, a. It was a
1: uh, which a eventually diff- drove the band apart. A
0: diff- it was a difficult dance to must, to master. And I think, you know, I don't think that, I think the class elements definitely had something to do with it. If you, uh, you know, I mean, Mick Jones and Paul Simonon had never had anything and were finally kind of rolling in it. And, you know, Mick Jones, I remember in one of the documentaries, uh, I believe it was the Joe Strummer documentary basically said, you know, I realized I'd never been on vacation before. He goes, I obviously I toured the world, but that's a different thing. But, he goes. I was making all this money, and I was like, "Fuck it! I just want—I want to go to Spain for two weeks." Yeah. <laughs> um, he kind of disappeared, but uh, basically, Combat Rock came out. It was huge in the United States. It was actually bigger in the states than it was in England. Um, Rock the Casbah. And should I stay or should I go? Were both top ten hits. In the United States, You're still here
1: on pretty heavy rotation yeah. on any you know sort of class. Should I stay or should I go? I'd say it resonates pretty heavily on classic rock radio still. Yeah,
0: the, I mean it was you know, released. It was uh, it was I think it was in the nineties. It was appeared in a Levi's jeans ad in England and went back to number one in England um, in the singles chart. Uh, it, it just those are those now. Uh, you know, it's hard to imagine now a world where that was sort of segregated off and and thought of as outsider music because it's you know it's right alongside um you know one of these nights and uh you know <laughs> and turn the page uh <laughs> on uh, classic rock radio at this point but it, it really was you know I'm was... going to have one of these nights in my head for the rest of the day thank you <laughs> don't put it on the playlist but uh you know it was it was you know it was Designed to be uh, antagonistic, thought-provoking music. I mean, songs like "Straight to Hell" and "And Know Your Rights." I mean, those were out and out just protest songs. There weren't. There was no gray area. There was no sort of um, you know beating around the bush. Those are two songs that you know flatly state what they you know what they want to state, and it's very overtly political stuff. Uh, I think Strummer was was pining to be this you know political. Figure and political force, Mick Jones was enjoying being a rock star, and that's where a lot of the tension seemed to have built also, this is you know again, a band that had put out the equivalent of you know eight albums in five years,
1: yeah, when you say took some time in eighty two they had just put out a double album and 79, 81.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and uh, you know, eighty-two is the is the consecutive year there for putting out an album. So yeah, it, it, you're it, literally they're... looking at 77, 79, 81, 82. Yeah, and
0: you're looking at eight albums worth of music put out in five years. And you know, at that and point
1: not 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 mailing it in either. I mean, as we said on the on the you know, London Calling and Santa talks, I mean, these are guys that are stretching the boundaries. And I would say Combat Rock too continues that. I mean, it, it goes a little more. Um, straightforward song oriented especially early you know side a let's say but uh it's still kind of you know definitely uh experiments with with sort of hip-hop funk reggae a lot of the
0: things that they were they were doing yeah I mean, straight to hell is a very unusual song um and i believe that was the third single off of
1: i mean rock the casbah for as much as that was played on early mtv because they probably for lack of video content <laughs> and for the fact that it was a a minor hit single or, or it a major legitimate hit, legitimate, legitimate hit sorry yeah. yeah um i mean that's a weird tune too i mean the, the piano and the you it's know, a great song though it is it really is yeah. you know what's
0: really good is the uh, extended version it's topper hedden who is uh the drummer for the clash um is a particularly good musician um in this case he laid down the piano part for uh rock the casbon and you know that was his contribution, um, but plays the on the extended version. There's a lot more piano in it. It's actually really uh, one of the great remixes of all time. That said, um, you know the the band is taking it. You know, uh, different tacks. I mean, the the record label obviously wants them to be huge. Pairs them up to open for who, the Who on their um, on their very... first last tour. <laughs> No, but a, a very, very major uh, farewell tour. Um, uh, I believe their first of about thirty-seven farewell yeah, tours. A, I think yeah. they're still touring, aren't they? Oh
1: yeah, yeah. I yeah. So I remember tours every other year.
0: I do remember in '82, though, people clamoring to see the the final Who show. No, that
1: was a big deal. I mean, uh, I was young, but that was a very. I remember that being a big deal.
0: And you know, the the Who were big Clash fans. Pete Townsend, massive Clash fan, but. I don't believe uh the who fans in America were as big a clash fans i th- I think the the uh you know one of the things that I think was most disappointing and one of the things that made that tour as unappealing as it was to to Mick Jones who was at wits end at that point was uh the fact that they were getting booed off stage most nights um and uh you know it was a it was a lot to ask of a of an audience um half in the three quarters in the bag. Uh, to to sit through um, you know some sort of uh, political proselytization process before getting to scream along to Bob, Bob O'Reilly, um, so you know there you have it. It was uh, it was the it was the last straw. It was the tour and everything that that split up the yeah, band. Yeah, and,
1: and so really pretty much soon after that tour, soon after that album was dropped, they were done.
0: Uh, they were and done it was, uh, Mick yeah, Jones and it was done
1: Mick Jones I was going to say Mick Jones who went on to form Big Audio Dynamite Joe Strummer obviously had a uh, on and off solo career um, Topper
0: hadn't went off to finish uh, uh, the heroin addiction he'd started previously <laughs> um, he went to top off his heroin addiction actually I think uh, Terry Chimes was back in the band at that point so yeah um, I think Topper had been dismissed Topper um, had been dismissed because of his heroin use and um so you know joe strummer and paul simonon uh went on and did the album that shall not be named again yeah and uh <laughs> then they they just fizzled out and it, you know uh, from all accounts i mean joe strummer had a really hard time following the class i mean mick jones was was in their uh you know big audio dynamite put out their first album in 1984 so i mean it was year and a half yeah and had actually a pretty
1: successful career and Very. came back as bad too you know had a big hit hits yeah. in America and, and England and has yeah. gone on to produce folks produced
0: and, Libertines among others yeah. um, you know he's had a, a good career and, and I think he understands his place in the in the history of, of rock and as far as that goes I don't know that Joe Strummer was ever comfortable with post-clash uh, the post-clash world for himself uh, which is too bad um, but uh yeah, that is that is the uh, story of The Clash, according to Brother, Brother, Brother.
1: <laughs> I think we got it. I think we got it right. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, one of our favorite bands will definitely have a... Uh, we'll have pretty much every Clash album you can get on Spotify on our playlist. So if you haven't uh, given, given the triple album Sandinista spin lately here's your opportunity and uh, yeah we'll
0: throw on a bunch of stuff from the bands that opened from them and, and anybody that we discussed in this but uh, you want to take a quick break and come back and end this how we always end it
1: yeah let's do it let's go out to straight to hell off of uh, Combat Rock
0: sounds good
3: to Jay- Let me tell you about your blood.
1: All right, welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother pod. Today is Wyndham and I wrapping up on The Clash and ending this episode as we end every episode. Wyndham, what are you listening to?
0: Well, Jeremy, thank you for asking. Um, I have my current situation, which is of interest to absolutely nobody, but um, I'm living in a in an apartment that's under construction right now, so I don't have a television. I don't really have a stereo set up, um, and I am watching documentaries by night on my computer. Uh, this week, I, I, uh, you know, sort of, um, inspired by our interview earlier in the summer with Jeff Dyer and having read his book, but beautiful on jazz, I had wanted to dig in, uh, the Ken Burns's jazz series that was put out in 2001 and I finally broke down and did it. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not a massive jazz aficionado. I, um... Uh, you know, I like what I like, but um, I am fascinated by the history of it. And it is, you know, again, it's, a, it's another insight into the history of this country and, and change, um, you know, social change that uh, is mirrored in, in musical progression. Um, so it, it's a very interesting series to me. Um, I've just uh, been watching the Vietnam series as well so uh, Ken Bur- I'm Ken Burnsing it uh, right now but uh, additionally HBO has a good Rolling Stone doc um, that uh, eh, you know what I won't, I won't say it. Rolling St- the HBO has a new Rolling Stone doc uh, on 50 years of, of Rolling Stone magazine and I like it I don't love it um, it's not See, as it should be better it should be better And it's it's not necessarily so. Anyway, that's what I've been uh, listening to. How about yourself?
1: So um, yeah, in in kind of uh, celebrating the forty years of the Clash, I did go back and put heavy rotation on the debut album, which is fucking fantastic. It's uh, you know, there's just little things about that album that I I forgot that how much I liked it. I don't often go back to it just because. Um, you know, I've listened to it so much in my youth, but it's, uh, it's really great. And then the other band, mine, mine are all music today that I, uh, that you and Christian actually turned me on to are the Casper Skulls. And I think we got a text earlier from Christian saying how much he's been enjoying that. And, uh, I agree. It's like, uh, there's just occasionally you find these bands that kind of capture the sounds that you like and, and meld them together and, into uh, kind of like a perfect mix, um, both female and male vocals. And uh, just really, really enjoying the album Mercy Works. Um, yeah, I think it's fantastic.
0: And I think you know it's funny. I'm not just saying this because they're from Canada uh, and from Toronto specifically, but it reminds me of uh, first hearing. Um, uh, broken social, broken scene social or... scene. Yeah, and exactly. Just because it, the people. There's a lot of uh, a lot of changes, and there's a lot of stylistic changes. They have a great female singer who. Doesn't sing on, doesn't sing lead on a lot of the songs, but you know when she does, it really brings something to every yeah, song she sings on. Exactly, it's song. it's a great. I I really like that album. I'm interested to see if they break big because it feels like they should.
1: Like we've said about so many great bands, we shall see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, let's get move on to the uh, top uh, four trillion best songs of all time.
0: Yeah. Uh, I am gonna, the one, one, uh, one of the redeeming things that came out of the Rolling Stone magazine documentary is, it reminded me of a song that I haven't, hadn't listened to in a long time, but it's phenomenal. Uh, one of the greats of all time. And that is River Deep Mountain High by Ike and Tina Turner. And that's what I'm throwing on the list.
1: Nice. How about um, you? I'm going to. I'm gonna go with uh, "Robins Dancing on My Own." Oh, nice! I, um, I just was actually like at the gym working out, and I uh, it came on, and the woman next to me you're watching enthusiastically. Girls on your I yeah, well, that was uh, that was last night. But um, the woman next to me enthusiastically was like, "I love this song," and just started boogieing. <laughs> and I remembered how much I love that song. I did not boogie, but I do love that song.
0: Yeah, it's great. Feel fun. like
1: dancing every time I hear it on my own. So right. we'll go with Rob and dancing on my own, and uh, we'll be back. So it was fun. Thanks for talking it. about The Clash with me.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. I'll talk to you guys later. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartorian and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother 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 podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.